talking about episode two of the netflix series the sandman this one entitled imperfect hosts one thing i noticed about this episode it is considerably shorter than the last one about 10 minutes less than the first episode and the episode next week is back to about 40 minutes so i don't know if that is something that's going to continue to happen in, in future seasons or what but i guess they were cool with this episode just being a little shorter we get an overhead shot of the destroyed palace of dreams as the episode starts. He and Lucien walk the now-decayed walls. Lucien says she kept a journal to chronicle everything that happened while he was gone, but after a while the words began to fade and every book in the library just became blank. One day the library was just gone, and she never found it again. Dream says that she stayed the royal librarian of an abandoned kingdom. Is that her official title? She's the royal librarian? It's interesting. She says she never felt abandoned. She knew that he would return. Dream finds a shard of glass on the ground, and then he stands back up, begins to use his power, and all the debris on the ground begins to rise up as he tries to repair the castle. But he strains and then hits the ground, and all the debris falls around him. Lucien says he needs rest and food, but Dream says he needs his helm, gem, and sand. He doesn't know where they are, but he needs to find them. Very cool way to show that this is not the full power dream. That this uh, that him losing those objects has definitely hurt him. But not only that, not only losing those items, but obviously spending a century locked away in London probably did a number to him as well. Not only did it obviously make most of his uh, creations abandoned ship, but it also made it where. His entire universe just kind of crumbled. And we haven't really seen, with him being back yet, if that has caused the sleeping sickness to leave, or if, because he's not full-powered, if that's still occurring in the real world. So, and the other thing, too, is he never really explained what Lucien was, or what her role was. Calling her the royal librarian was interesting, because she seems more like she's I guess they can call it a librarian, but she, it seems more like she is like the chronicler of his his things. And I mean, maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's a, a weird way to put that, but she she definitely is like a second in command. But she seems to hold a lot of knowledge about different things, and and is kind of a sounding board for him as well. So I'd like to maybe know a little bit more about what she actually does and and who she is because. It, as we'll see in this episode, a lot of the the inhabitants of the dream world that are not the nightmares that dream created seem to be entities inhabiting stories that like people would dream about. Ethel is shown on the phone with multiple people trying to sell precious items to them. Despite being in her, I would say, probably late 80s at least, she is just a little bit older as she's been recast now played by Julie Richardson. She gets a phone call, but it's only static online, and Ethel checks her security cameras, but she doesn't see anything. As she goes downstairs, the Corinthian is there. Ethel asks what Corinthian is, if he's not a person, 
and he asks her if she remembers dream, and Ethel understands that Corinthian is a nightmare. Corinthian says the dream is out and on his way to her. And she's like, I didn't do anything to him. And the Corinthian correctly states to her, you stole from him. Even indirectly, you stole from him. Dream says he needs to summon a three-in-one in order to find his tools. Lucien doesn't like this idea, and he says the fates see and know all, but Lucien says they speak in riddles and never tell you what you need to hear. She says to ask one of his siblings to help him. Surely Destiny knows where his tools are. Dream says they all have their own realms to deal with, and they stay out of each other's businesses. Lucien reminds him that he's the only one who actually stays out of the business of his siblings, and they meddle all the time. Dream says that they already know what happened to him, and they still never came to help. Lucien says that uh, the fates are not cheap, and they cost a fortune. And Dream asks if there's anything of his that he created that remains intact in the dreaming that he can absorb and regain some of his power. I think most people know the story of the three fates. Um, there's, there's so many different depictions of the three fates, but mostly it, it remains the same thing. It's the, it's the maiden, the mother, and the crow. And most of the time they are soothsayers or seers and this one's not but there does seem to be a little bit more in terms of what you have to do in order to to bring them here or to meet with them but lucien kind of builds them up as being something that's dangerous i don't know that i i mean once once we get to it they see more talk than anything, but maybe it's just because they know that Dream, if he has his power, could probably beat them. We cut to two large homes, as a man is calling to a gargoyle named Gregory. He calls for his brother, who is weeding his garden. These are Cain and Abel. Dream and Lucien arrive. Cain is played by Sanjeev Baskar, while Abel is played by Asim Kadri. They both remark about how happy they are to see Dream back. They argue over which house Dream will visit, the House of Mystery or the House of Secrets. Dream says for the sake of the dreaming, he must take back a gift he gave them years ago. They, of course, offer anything he needs, but apparently that gift is Gregory the Gargoyle. Abel asks if there's another way, but Dream says that it needs to be done for the sake of the dreaming. He snaps at him, saying he is acting like they're the ones who destroyed the dreaming and disappeared for over a century. Dream says Cain has forgotten himself, and Cain says, no, you've forgotten us. Dream says he hasn't come back to ask them, but instead is here to ask Gregory. He walks up to Gregory, and surprisingly, Gregory doesn't speak. Instead, he just nods yes, that he agrees to help. Dream says he can only take that of which he has created, and Gregory began life as a nightmare. He's an adorable little bastard, that's for sure. He doesn't seem like a nightmare, but I understand. Also, what has Cain enabled? The thing I notice is that Cain, Abel, and Lucien all have pointed ears. And the nightmares don't. I mean, obviously we've seen Corinthians. He just has teeth eyes. But he's got normal ears, and this is a gargoyle. It doesn't seem like he's got pointed ears. 
So if Dream didn't create Cain, Abel, Lucien, like where did they come from? There's not really an explanation of to what these people are. I guess they are the, like stories of man that have just been kind of like made flesh in this world, or it's like the, the people who dream about them kind of create them, bring them out of existence. Maybe I'm not sure, but it seems like. Dream has nothing to do with the like inhabitants of his world, other than he created a bunch of nightmare creatures and nightmare people and stuff like that. But there's there's a distinction that I'm just not fully understanding so far. Cain and Abel both say goodbye to Gregory, and Dream holds his hand out and it turns Gregory into sand, which is absorbed into his dream. Dream and Lucien leave, and Abel calls out, "Good luck to you." Cain calls him a suck up and then murders him with a pitchfork. Obviously, if you know the story of Cain and Abel, it makes total sense that Cain just killed his brother, but we will get a little bit more on that in a minute. Back with the Corinthian and Ethel, and Corinthian offers to teach Ethel how to use the tools to kill Dream. Ethel says she doesn't have them, and even if she did, she would not use them to kill Dream because she would most likely die. The Corinthian asks if her son John knows where they are, and he wonders what Dream would do with the son of Magus. Probably nothing good, I have to say. Dream and Lucien stand on a dock, and Lucien worries for Dream. She says that the waters are darker and now more dangerous. Dream dumps a handful of sand into the water, and when he reaches his hand towards the water, something grabs him and pulls him under. We get a voiceover as he is dragged underwater that he says, Lucien, you are correct. My dreams and nightmares no longer recognize their master. But I'm going to make them remember. So, he decides, or he knows, that he needs to meet the, the three-in-one at a crossroads. So he says he found a, found a crossroads in the dream of a Cambodian farmer. And we see a, his massive hand come down and literally pull up a like cross-section of road out of the ground. It then flashes over to him being hung in another dream to represent surrender and sacrifice. Says this is a dream of a Japanese filmmaker who is obsessed with British films. Finally, he sees a serpent, the symbol of life, death, and rebirth. He proceeds to capture it, and now he can present his offerings to the fates. Dream stands in a dark wasteland and calls out to the fates. Three women appear. The maiden fate, played by Danita Gohel. The mother fate, played by Nina Wadia. And the crone fate, played by Soad Baris. So, a pretty, again, a pretty typical depiction of, of the fates that we get here. A young woman, a middle-aged woman, an old woman. I would say there's a little bit of like their personality here, but it, this the scene happens pretty quick, so you don't get a lot of it. Other than the crone is like not a, a nice person and seems to be very agitated. The maiden seems to be sort of turned on by Dream, and the mother is kind of like very welcoming to him. The crone says that Dream is here because he wants something. And Maiden reminds Crone that Dream brought them some nice stuff. 
Dream hands over the snake, which the mother eats. They may ask him three questions, and they will get one answer from each of them. His first question is, where is his leather pouch filled with sand? The maiden says it was last sold in London to a magic user named Johanna Constantine. Dream says he knew a Constantine, but that was 300 years ago, so he wonders if maybe this is a descendant of him. He asks if she still has it, but the maiden responds, You get one question and one answer. His second question is where is his helm? The mother says it was traded away to a demon for the amulet of protection. He asks which demon, but of course, no follow-up questions. His last question is where is the ruby? The crone says the gem was passed from mother to son. He asks where it is now, because he's a slow learner, I guess. And the three women scream at him, you have asked your questions, and they disappear. So they said, Lucien said that they speak in riddles, or they don't tell you everything that you need to know. The first answer to the question seemed pretty straightforward. It was sold in London to a magic user named Joanna Constantine. So that at least he can look at and go, I have a name. Even if she doesn't currently have it, I can track it down based on the name, right? When he gets asked about the helm, traded away to a demon. Now, he doesn't know the exact demon, but at least he knows where can you find demons? You can go to hell. And the other possible thing is he knows it was traded for an amulet of protection. So if he found the amulet of protection, he'd be able to follow from there. So both of those questions and, and those things are like, okay, they're not straightforward with like it was sold to the demon Azeroth. And, you know, no, nothing like that. But at least it's, it's a lot of the last one is a straight fuck you. The It was passed from mother to son. He doesn't know. I don't believe that he knows that Ethel had a son. And even if he does know, it would be hard to track down because as we already know, like Ethel is not going by her name anymore. She is, she's like tried to make sure that everything that her past is completely erased. So that is going to be rather difficult for him to track down the map. And that still isn't like, okay, it was passed down from mother to son, but does that mean that John has it? Or does that just mean that at one point in time he possessed it and doesn't have it anymore? That's where I'm like, okay, there it is. There's the, there's that, like, they're going to kind of fuck with you on this stuff. But he's got a good first lead. He's got a name, Joanna Constantine, and that seems to be his next stop. Back in Dream World, Abel rises from his grave, and he finds a small egg near his grave, which we had seen that Dream had left behind with him. Ethel says she does not have the tools. Brithian says she is very successful, so she clearly used the tools. Ethel calls him sexist, since the only way a woman can be successful is using magic. But of course, he reminds her. Lady, you're like a hundred, and you're smoking hot. I'm going to guess you at some point in time used the magic. She claims she traded the sand and the helm for her life in America. She says the ruby has the power to make dreams come true, but also has the power to make nightmares come true. John took the ruby from her, but then the ruby took John. 
She says she doesn't know where it is now. And Corinthian pulls off his glasses and says she's lying. But she doesn't have to because her eyes will tell her everything. Ethel says he'll regret doing that, as she has her own tools now. She proceeds to pull out the ambulatory protection which she traded the helm for, which causes the Corinthian to fucking explode. So, she knows which demon has the helm. And she also knows, of course, where her son is. Now, if she knows where the ruby is or not, he says she was lying, but it seems like she knows. Second, I knew for a fact there's no way that they just aced the Corinthian in episode two. He's too cool of a character. He's too good of an actor. He's too good of a storyline for them to just be like, okay, we just used you to show that she's got this thing. No, 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 no. We can, we can have our cake and blow it up too because he's definitely coming back at the end of this episode. Spoiler alert. But even when I was watching it, I was like, he's not gone. There's no way that he's gone because yeah, that would have been such a waste of, a, of an awesome character for him to just have a couple of scenes and then just be aced. So. Abel returns home and thanks his brother for burying him in such a shallow grave this time. He also thanks him for the egg, which Dream gave him, not Kane. Kane asks why he would give him an egg, and Abel says, well, as an apology for murdering you. And Kane's like, when have I ever apologized for murdering you? The egg cracks open, and out pops a baby gargoyle. Kane says if he thinks leaving this here makes up for him taking Gregory, then Dream is an idiot. Abel thinks that Dream feels bad about losing Gregory, and Kane admits it is cute. Abel wants to name it Irving, but Kane tells him you have to name a gargoyle with a name that starts with G, like Gormongo, or Gladstone, or Ganymede. Abel says, Girving them. Then Kane stabs a poker into his brother, killing him again. The CGI on the gargoyles is okay. It's not great. It's it's very clear. It is not to the level of like the dragons on Game of Thrones, but it's not quite like the shark and deep blue sea. Like it's 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 decent. It's noticeable though, but it kind of happens when you're doing things in broad daylight like this. And the baby gargoyle, it is cute, but again, like I said, it's it's very clearly CGI. Ethel arrives at a secure facility so she can talk to her son John. John is played by David Fellis. Fellis? Fellis? He's been in a million different things. Great actor. John says every day is the same in his prison. And Ethel tries to remind him that it's a hospital, but John isn't free to leave, so it's prison. Ethel says they need to talk about the ruby. So, now we know where John is. And by all accounts, it seems that the ruby has either corrupted him, made him go insane, Either way, he's probably not good if he's out. So, let's try to keep him in here, but we know he's getting out. Abel again rises from the dead and finds the baby gargoyle flying around. He calls him Goldie now, but he thinks of the gargoyle as Irving. Abel tells Goldie, Goldie, this is what they are. The first victim and the first murderer. Cain keeps killing his brother, and Abel never stays dead. They are dreams that inhabit a story. And this is their story. He says he thinks about a story in which two brothers love each other very much, 
They don't live in different houses. They live in the same houses. And they are very much happy. But of course, they don't live in the, the same house. And if Cain is happy when every time he kills Abel, then so be it. I don't know if we'll ever see Cain and Abel again. I feel like uh, Gerving is going to be something that comes back later, maybe as full-grown. But uh, I was I was at least intrigued about Cain and Abel. They're, it's an interesting dichotomy where it's like they're forever kind of trapped in this loop of uh, he kills his brother, and then his brother comes back and he just does it again the next day. And he, Abel seems to understand it, and he even makes a joke about it, like, well, Cain normally doesn't kill me before, uh, before noon, because he's not really a morning person. So, like, it doesn't seem to really affect him all that much, other than, like, it's kind of a sad existence. But, yeah. I'll be interested to see him again. Dream is heading to London to track down his sand. After he gets his sand, he will then head to Hell to find his helm. Lucien asks what that he takes a raven with him. Dream says he doesn't want another raven. Jessamine was the last. And Dream enters the water and heads to find Joanna Constantine. Corinthian reforms back in the Dreaming. Lucien stands before him, and Corinthian correctly says the Dream is out looking for his tools. He is heading back out to the waking world. As it turns out, he kind of fits in good over there. Corinthian says Dream doesn't give a fuck about Lucien or any of his creations. Then he disappears back into the waking world as the episode ends. So I, apparently if you kill the Corinthian in the waking world, he just respawns back in the dreaming. And the only way that they can really take him out seems to be if Dream reabsorbs him. Now, there might be other ways that they can do that, but at least that seems to be uh, the way that it's done. This was a much better episode, I think, than the first one. I understand that the the first episode has so much to get through, but this was like it's starting to, to hit the ground running. now. Like We've got a clear direction. We're trying to get these three items back so the dream can sort of remake his world. And we have, I don't know if it's going to be like, Next episode, he's going to get the sand back. Next episode of that, he's going to get the helm back. I don't think so. I don't think they're going to do that in like three straight episodes. But it's cool that we have kind of like a uh, set storyline now. And we also see that like Corinthian doesn't want to come anywhere near Dream because he knows if Dream has his ruby, he can bring him back. And even if he doesn't, I don't know. I feel like he might be able to do it anyways because he was able to absorb Gregory, but that was like a consensual thing. So, it definitely needs to get his powers back, but I'm interested to see where it goes. So, thank you for listening to this one, and I will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye.